Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. That, of course, I hope, of course, is the Overture to Candide, uh, composed and arranged by Leonard Bernstein. If you've never heard it before, you should listen to it after the show. One of our panelists, I think, would say that it is the greatest overture of any kind uh, ever written. Um, We are here today to talk about the movie Maestro, which is uh, written and directed and starred in by Bradley Cooper, accompanied by Carrie Mulligan, uh, who has actually top billing. She plays Felicia Montalegra Cone, the wife uh, of Leonard Bernstein. Uh, We have a terrific panel here from the nose to talk about all this today. And probably before we even bring the panel aboard, uh, I'm going to share a clip with you. Uh, We're going to hear Bradley Cooper as Leonard Bernstein meeting uh, Carrie Mulligan as Felicia Montalegro, one of the first scenes they have together. Uh, And I I think this is she's been cast in something. She, we should say, Felicia Montalegro was an uh, an actor uh, and then also kind of a spoken word performer uh, as her career went along. Uh, But they've just met. At a you know funky New York party, uh, and they have the following exchange as they kind of practice her part. This is a one cat. Oh, I've got it. Something's wrong. What? What's your character's name? Um, Margaret. Margaret. <laughs> Margaret. Yes. And you're the understudy. Yeah. No, I think you should be Margaret. I think you should be Margaret eight no, shows a week. No, That's no, what I no. think, front and center. And if it's fear that's stopping oh, you, Felicia... Oh, there are many things stopping me, Lenny, but fear isn't one of them. I wouldn't be standing here in front of you. Heavens, I wouldn't even be in New York City if fear got the better of me. It's just not that easy. We'd be fools not to think that luck plays a part, as well as talent and determination. Oh, a perfect example of that. Oh, you must be joking. Bruno Walter hadn't gotten sick that fateful day. Rajinsky snowed in upstate. I never would have had my debut That's at the Philharmonic. I'd be teaching piano to little eight-year-olds who complained. If it wasn't that day, it would have been another. Oh, is that what you think? Yes, I know it. Really? Of course. And don't forget, you are a man. I never do. And let me introduce today's panel. Steve Metcalf, uh, we had to have Steve Metcalf, uh, is the founder and director of the Garmini Concert Series at the University of Hartford's Hart School, also a composer and arranger, uh, someone who has uh, written powerfully and eloquently about music over the course of his career. Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College. She has a new book out. Uh, she's the inventor also of the Papoulian through line. Uh, and uh, she's also a very loyal subscriber to the Hartford Symphony Orchestra, which is why she was one of my first thoughts when we, when we first came conceived this show. But Metcalf, I have to begin with you. Um, maybe even before we talk about the movie, you should just say a little something about what Leonard Bernstein means to you. And I think he's meant something to you over a very large part of your life. Well, it's true. I don't I don't think I'm alone in that. I think 
I think young musical geeky lads of my generation, almost all of us in some way or other kind of grew up with Lenny as a, as a kind of a touchstone of, of sorts, you know, I, I must say, and I think I've told you this story when I was about nine or so, my mother took me to Tanglewood to see a concert that Lenny conducted. And after it was over, we were walking away from the shed and this Rolls Royce kind of kind of <laughs> lumbered by and, and then stopped a few feet down the road. And, and sure enough, it was the maestro. And I had my uh, little brownie camera around my neck and I marched up to Bernstein and pointed my camera in his face about two feet away. And of course, he took no notice of it whatsoever. But I clicked away and I and I still have those those pictures and uh yeah I mean throughout his life and career you know he he was in in many ways the sort of public face of classical music for all of us and uh, did have the chance to meet him later in my life uh, again at Tanglewood um so he's he's been a very important figure to me and many others and frankly this is why I sort of approached the movie with great anticipation, but also anxiety that they would screw this up or that they would kind of make some cheesy biopic or something. But in in my view, this is a really a fine, brave, interesting, worthy movie. Right. We should point out that the next time you used the brownie uh, in somebody's face, it was 50 Cent, and it did not go as well. Um, <laughs> it's like something you don't do, apparently. So, um, yeah, Irene, so... I think we can talk about the movie now. And I think the first question about the movie, in a way, is who or what is it about? It's clearly not uh, a Leonard Bernstein biopic. In fact, all the things you would want to see in a biopic don't even happen in front of us. There isn't even any any plot unfolding, for example, during West Side Story. That's an entirely done, you know, during a time that the film isn't even taking place. Uh, it's one of those 15-year jumps that the film takes. So things that you might want to see or see Candide come together with Dorothy Parker and Lillian Hellman and Richard Wilbur and James Agee, that's not in there. So the question is, it's obviously scenes from a marriage. Um, and there's, I think, some legitimate question about whether it's more about Lenny or more about Felicia. But I'd just like to know, first of all, how you processed that. Uh, yeah, well, that's a really that, that's a that's a very good question, what it's about. Um, and I guess I when I first saw it, I actually saw it twice. I saw it once in the theater and once on Netflix. The first time I thought it was really about um, Felicia <clears throat> more, but I also thought it was about yeah, in a way, it's about both of them. It's about the, you know, like the, my first thought, though, was it's like a, you know, that the what it's like to be in a relationship with someone like that, to put it to, to begin thinking about that and, and, the, and the complexity um, of what it's like and who she was and what happened to her through the relationship. But the more I thought about it and when I saw it again, I thought, you know, in a way it's, you know, if you think about how music affects you, music doesn't affect you with specific meaning but it affects you with emotional meaning and the movie has I, I feel like it has so many emotional layers that there are ways for everyone to to find their own emotions within it in some way and to observe the motion the emotions of it so if, it, if I had to say it's a, what is it about I would say it's about the emotional valences that were around Leonard Bernstein 
Well, that's a great uh, way to think about it. I, uh, that's beautifully put, too. Um, so, Steve, you know, right around the same age that you were snapping with your brownie, uh, Bradley Cooper had become obsessed with conductors, uh, mostly because of Tom and Jerry and Bugs Bunny. Uh, and he had actually asked Santa Claus for a baton, a conductor's baton, which he got and he's kept for most of his life. I think he lost it recently, inexplicably. Um, but, you know, this, so this isn't something that Bradley Cooper got interested in even five years ago. <laughs> this is this is something Bradley Cooper's been interested in, in his entire life. And and you used the phrase, you hoped that, that you were hoping they didn't screw it up. Maybe say what screwing it up would have amounted to if, if that's what had happened. Well, I guess I mean several things. First of all, a, a standard musical biopic, I think, would have would have uh, ultimately failed just because this is too, you know, sort of complicated a life and too kind of overstuffed a life to really pack into two hours if you if you really want to tell the kind of cradle to grave story of Leonard Bernstein. Uh, so what what a lot of people seem to find fault with in this movie, uh, namely that it doesn't include all the touchstone moments like West Side Story and so and and his for that matter his political life which is not even hinted at in the movie um I, you know I actually take as as a sign that that Cooper was attempting something far more kind of courageous in a way and unexpected than I think any of us thought and I think some viewers have been a little thrown by that because you know where is this other stuff I, I, I will say this, in thinking about the movie over the last couple of days, I, I do think if you walk into this movie knowing absolutely nothing about Leonard Bernstein, uh, Bernstein, and, you know, I guess there are younger folks who for whom that's true, um, it's, it's going to be a little hard to sort of stay with it and figure out, well, who are those people up there and what's that guy, you know, and what why are these... Why are these dancers in sailor suits and stuff? So, so, so I do think if you if you have no no background, no understanding, no no previous kind of contact with the Bernstein story, this this might be a movie that would be a little hard to keep up with. Yeah. So, yeah. Go the, ahead, Irene. Uh, yeah. I, I would just say that um, if if you if you want to learn something about Bernstein, Stein, is it Stein or Stein? Is it E I or I? Stein? Stein. He Stein, always sorry, insisted sorry. on that. Stein. Um, and um, but but there but we all know people like that. Even you know maybe not as gigantic as that, but people who are like him in some way. And I feel like even if you don't know who all the people are around him, you know there's people around him. And I and I think it could be an interesting movie for the, the, the portrait of a personality, a kind of personality that does exist in the world beyond him, even for somebody that doesn't necessarily appreciate even his music or anything. I think it could be an interesting movie. And also the way they shift in and out of scenes and everything is kind of fascinating. And yes. so I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that somebody would be completely at sea if they had never heard of Bernstein. 
Well, you, you know, know they, I, yeah. I think so. how they handle this. First of all, we should say the first half of the movie is in black and white, or about, about half of the movie is in black and white. And and how they handle this, Steve, is kind of interesting too, because they tease us at the beginning that maybe it is going to be some kind of a biopic. I mean, among the first things you see is kind of a fun-looking party, and Adolph Green and Betty Condon are screwing around and being funny and singing, and you know. <laughs> and then we there's another scene where, like, you know, uh, Bernstein and one of his lovers are down below, and it turns out Aaron Copeland is like <laughs> sitting up, like sort of half a story above them or something. And we, we, yeah. we see Kusevitsky out in Tanglewood and you think, okay, maybe it's going to be about all this stuff. And then it does <laughs> it's not about any of that stuff. But to Irene's point, what they do is they use musical cues all the way through so that you're constantly sort of hearing what all the fuss is about while you're dealing with this much more interior story. And I'm wondering, Steve, how, how effective you thought that, that strategy was. Uh, well, very, in a word. I myself did not realize until I watched the movie that the entire musical soundtrack of of the film is Bernstein music. Mm-hmm. Now, looking back on it, I suppose how could you how could you do it otherwise? I mean, you, you'd have to have a pretty, you know, a pretty accomplished composer to be, to be able to kind of hold his own writing an original soundtrack for this movie. But it was also, I, I think, one of the elements of what what I'm going to call bravery that Cooper brought to this project to use only uh, Bernstein's uh, music as the entire soundtrack and use it very deftly, I would say, you know, because it, it partakes of a lot of different um, excerpts from different parts of his life. And it's not always strictly chronological it's it you know in other words it's it's chosen to underscore literally underscore you know a particular emotional kind of kind of moment or whatever it is and and i think that's a i I think that was an inspired decision i think it worked it worked beautifully so i want to talk a little bit about carrie mulligan and a little bit uh more about bradley cooper as performers uh, in order to set that up let's hear this is sort of one of the kind of epic and pivotal moments here it will be referred to probably for many years to come as kind of the thanksgiving day fight or the snoopy cameo you can call it whatever you want uh but this is uh, a2 cat you aren't up on that podium allowing us all to experience the music the way it was intended you are throwing it in our faces how dare you? How much we will never How be able to ever understand. And by us witnessing you do it so effortlessly, oh, you hope that we will know, really know, deep in our core, how less than we all well, are. That's you. your issue. That and you it's your less hubris. Than. Join the crowd. You around Join the with line all your dewy outrageous that Harry corrals for you under the guise they have something intellectual to offer you, or you are, dare I say, teaching them. Well, at least my heart is open. <laughs> the have you forgotten about the four years where you, you couldn't decide if you wanted to marry me. me? That's what I think. The idea, the idea. Of you, It's like the that idea. Richard Chamberlain movie that we saw last week, and he said, how could I ever compete with the man that you think I am? Uh, thank God I met Dick so I could f*** oh, about your indecision. Dick Hart. Richard Hart. Yes. Who f- Yes. Who, died. who loved me. Who died. Who loved me. Oh, yeah, and he's a corpse now, and I was the one who was a fool waiting outside the f***ing hospital for you like an idiot in my truth. Your truth is a f***ing lie. So, um, boy, it it all kind of gets laid out there. By the way, Richard Hart, Dick Hart, was an actor, and they had a relationship, he and Felicia, for I think four years until he died at the age of 35. Um, And we see a little bit of that, but not much of it. Uh, So much is sort of just hinted at, but not spoken about. But Irene, 
Oh, let's talk about Carrie. I think Carrie Mulligan, I mean, I haven't seen every movie that came out in 2023, but I'm having a hard time believing that a female performer has given a performance that is anywhere close to this. I mean, there's just so much that she does. There are scenes where, I'm not even talking about the Eli Cathedral scene, but earlier there's a thing where she's off in the wings looking at him, and she just does about eight things with her eyes, just looking across the stage at where he is. Um, I mean, say a little bit about how how you're seeing Mulligan's performance, Irene. She's getting the Academy Award, let's face it. <laughs> but yes, um, well, because I think she embodies the pain of being involved with a man like that in such an interesting way. Uh, and that so many people, so many women, especially in the 40s and 50s, you know, marry, you know, she was she was so full of life and energy and and and. But being with him kind of caused her, to, you know, even though she she loved him intensely, she also had to mute herself. And she and that comes out so beautifully in that performance that I just I, I was so moved by it. Um, I saw my mother in her and all and, you know, all kinds of all kinds of people. And um, and so. I guess I'm just saying yes, you know, and the way her, the, the ambi- you know, the, the, you know, his, it, it just makes you think about, you know, it's so easy. We always throw around the term narcissist for a man like that. And you could, but he, but he had layers, you know, it's, it's, it's too much of a stereotype to just say he was a narcissist because he, you know, and the way he says in that, you know, what you said, my, my heart is open, you know, what are you talking about? And to him it was, but to her, there were some limitations to that, especially vis-a-vis her, her, and and it all comes out in the way she acts it. So, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah, I mean, Steve, this is one of the things this movie about is about is about the crushing of this woman. I mean, we see her gradually crumble and be crushed, but it starts the relationship and and the marriage starts. She essentially proposes to him, and she cites they both cite this uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay poem that begins, I know I am but summer to your heart and not the full four seasons of the year. And goes on to talking about welcoming uh, other other people are going to have to play those other parts. She sort of acknowledges who he is. She knows who he is. Um, and then, I don't know, we watch her realize that that knowledge isn't enough to get her anywhere close to the finish line. But uh, Steve, I'd love to know how you see Felicia and, and Mulligan's Felicia. Well, first of all, I think as a uh, as an actress, as a as a as a performance, it's her picture, and really not his, or at least he's a supporting figure. I mean, let's remember that Bernstein was a global celebrity for decades. Everybody knows what he looked like, what he talked like, what he gestured like, and so to some extent, when you when you do one of these, Cooper is doing an impersonation and and he did a fantastic impersonation and i think as he grew older as lenny grew older uh cooper's performance was more and more authentic in terms of how we remember the actual leonard bernstein but you can almost hear the bernstein children who were involved very closely in this project kind of whispering to cooper no no dad would have gestured this way or you know you need to you need to modulate the voice a little bit up or down you know whereas whereas you know Carrie Mulligan could be and was able to create you know her understanding of Felicia without any of that baggage because you know 
obviously there's no there's no real public record except for some performances of of what Felicia sounded like in private life. So so she had the opportunity to to really make this lovely, touching, overwhelming performance all her own, which she obviously delivered on. You know, um, I want to talk a little bit about Cooper, too, as an actor here and also just as a a star of various kinds, Um, maybe a star who in a way embodies certain qualities of Bernstein in the sense that I think he's he's going to be good at a lot of different things. Um, there's been a lot of talk about how hard he's campaigning for this movie, maybe for for uh, not just for box office, but for Oscars. Um, and and I don't know. I, I, I don't see it that way. I see him a little bit less feverish than the way that he's portrayed by some people and, and more relaxed. And there's also something very likable about him. So likable that, Kat, this is going to be A4. Before we talk about Bradley Cooper as uh, Leonard Bernstein, uh, uh, for those people who don't know anything about Le- Leonard Bernstein, this is how, how you might remember Bradley Cooper, besides The Hangover. This is A4. To tell you all the incredible things about T-Mobile, we tried to make a commercial with Bradley Cooper and his mother. Hi, how can I help you? Yeah, I don't like the way you look. <laughs> Does G-Mobile really have a 5G? America's largest 5G network. Try it again. Oh, my God. You look like a flamingo in this. Okay. America's largest 5G network. How can I help you? Hi, how are you? Can I help you? You're making me crazy. And what does price lock guarantee mean? Mom, talk to me. Don't worry about this. Well, I have one eye there and one eye on you. T-Mobile has price lock. Okay, whoa. Give me the paper. Smile. You look like a clam. I think I know what I'm doing. I've been nominated nine times. Yeah, but you never won any. (laughs) Speaking of winning, this year T-Mobile's network won the most national awards. Now this just might make us America's best network. You did so well. Wish they could have said that. So um, <laughs> it's a very cute commercial. But, you know, Irene, contained in there is that I've been nominated nine times. I think it's that as an actor and a producer. Um, you know, I, I agree. I think Carrie Mulligan's going to win an Oscar um, you, for some of the reasons that Steve said, but also because of the existence of Killian Murphy. It's less clear to me uh, that Cooper is going to win the Oscar. But I feel like by directing this, is this is his second directorial effort after A Star is Born. He's really kind of establishing himself as somebody really important, I think, here in, in just the world of American culture. But just what, just give me whatever your take uh, is on Bradley Cooper as we head into 2024, Irene. Well, he sure is establishing himself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole direction of the movie is is wonderful, I think, um, <clears throat> as well as the acting. But, I mean, I think he must have been, you know, he he that's part of how he could, why he could act that part is because he, he understands that sort of, I'm sure, I imagine the, 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 the difference between how you're seen by the public and what's going on inside of you. And he acts, he acted that so well, he, he was, he was such a public persona and also had layers of, you know, things that he didn't want everyone to know that not everyone knew. And, and he he did it. Let's see. What can I else can I say? You know, um, yeah. He was, and it was so believable. Yeah, he was so, and he kind of looked like Leonard Bernstein too. You know, they really, he really did sort of evoke so much of the of the persona. Oh, that can was I fantastic. Just, can, yeah. I, can I just add yeah, to in, yeah. that? Please. 
for a second because I I fear we're going to slide by it and forget to mention this. But you know, for all the for all the authenticity of this performance and the and the way I think we're agreeing that he sort of evoked Lenny in many ways in a in a way that you know who who really could have predicted that Bradley Cooper was capable of that. The the thing that I just have to mention here is that is that as I'm not sure everybody understands that the scene toward the end in which we see Bernstein conducting the last six or seven minutes mm. of the Mahler Resurrection Symphony in the cathedral, he he is actually conducting those forces. He he actually got up and conducted these several hundred professional singers and musicians in one of the most monumentally complicated, difficult, almost unapproachable pieces of music in the history of the world. And and this, to me, is just beyond stunning. In fact, the people connected with the movie supposedly advised him against trying this, um, and yet he did it, and by all accounts, you know, uh, People were just speechless that he was able to pull this off. Of course, he did have, you know, Yannick Nizetz again working with him for literally two years on those six minutes. But nevertheless, it's it's just a, a phenomenal accomplishment that I don't think musicians or non-musicians can can really kind of kind of grasp how unlikely it is that a human being could do that. Yeah, I, I do think that whatever else my relationship to this movie is, and I really like this movie a lot, but there's also like a separate thing where I'm just going to watch those six minutes a bunch of times, you know, either fast forward. And, 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 and yeah. let's also, in the category of uh, making this a courageous movie, let's also acknowledge six minutes of a Mahler symphony without break, without cutaways, in a in a Hollywood, you know, mainstream film is itself in a way, unbelievable. Yes. No, it, it, and this, it really is. I mean, if I can't, there can't be a more gripping six minutes of movie in 2023. I mean, if they gave awards for best scene, that would win. It, it really is just remarkable. You know, there's so much more that we want to say, but we're kind of out of time in this segment. Uh, we're going to come back, talk a little bit about sort of the year of classical music uh, and, and related kinds of music as we experienced it. But uh, yeah, Maestro, you absolutely do need to see this movie. Uh, and we'll uh, come back in the next segment with more. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. 
The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. I should say that's a uh, cut called Ananga 3 uh, by Ashley Jackson. It's one of the pieces of music that I really enjoyed this year. Ashley Jackson is a young harpist and composer-arranger. Um, this album's kind of a concept album, but it's sort of her merging her own musical sensibilities with some other composers and poets. Uh, in this case, I'm not exactly sure how she's doing the adaptation, but it's ad- adapted from original work by William Grant Still, a black American composer that I think a lot of people don't. I, well, I didn't. I had never heard of him before this. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the music we listened to this year, some of the concerts people saw, uh, some of the trends that we might be noticing. Steve Metcalf is the only person among us who's really qualified to have this conversation, but Irene Papoulos and I will do our best. So, yeah, I don't know. Metcalf, you want to talk about a few things that jumped out at you this year, including... You know, we don't have a celebrity conductor at the level of Lenny Bernstein, but maybe the closest person that we do have to that made a big move this year. You might want to start there. Sure. You're you're obviously speaking of the dude, uh, <laughs> Gustavo Dudamel, who uh, is now going to be moving to the New York Philharmonic from Los Angeles. And he is, I think... Uh, uh, a sort of emblematic of, of the thing I want to, the, the overall little trope that I'd like to mention here from 19, from 19, 2023, and not to sound overly glib, but I think this, this past year, when you look back, it really does, for several reasons, constitute maybe the first year in, maybe in my lifetime, or maybe I don't know, in the 20th century, where classical music really confronted its kind of dead white guy European kind of mantle and and tried to start dealing with it. So we have, uh, you know, Dudamel himself being uh, in some ways an example. Uh, if if there's one development from last year that that maybe crystallizes this better than any other, it might be the Metropolitan Opera's presentation last spring of of the uh, opera Champion by the by the jazz trumpeter and and composer Terence Blanchard, which was an opera about the tragic welterweight boxer Emil Griffith, uh, who who had a actually a complicated sexual life, not entirely unlike Lenny's. Um, but in any case, this was this was uh, I, I think in many ways an unprecedented project for the Metropolitan Opera of all people to 
to get behind and to produce. And incidentally, it did star in the role of uh, Griffith, uh, the bass baritone uh, Ryan Speedo Green, who, uh, as many of you know, is a Hart School alum and uh, who is now an international superstar. Um, but 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 I think what I'm trying to say here, and again, I don't want to sound too glib, is that is that for a lot of reasons, Me Too and and I think just general cultural currents that are going on, the the classical world really did make uh, uh, and it, and continues to make an honest effort to to embrace uh, composers and performers of color and women and works of music that have not been part of the canon typically over the years that are now working their way into, you know, sort of elbowing their way onto the stage. And, and I think it's, uh, it's a very hopeful development. Now, as I think we're going to talk about in a minute, the, the question is, will audiences kind of embrace this? Will they buy it? Will they buy tickets? Will they, will they want to hear some of these pieces by some of these performers and composers are, are, are they going to really insist on, you know, that we, that we return to the war horses of old. I, I think that's a question yet to be uh, answered. Well, let's pivot. That's a great moment to pivot over to Irene. Irene, you come at this uh, as a member of those audiences uh, and you are somebody who goes to the Harvard Symphony a lot. Uh, we sh- well, you should just sort of say, you should just respond to what Steve just said. Uh, you know, obviously you have a love of Beethoven. We'll talk about that in about two seconds. But what about the other stuff? I, I would add Ashley Jackson to what he's talking about right now. She is also a young woman of color as well. Um, I don't know. Irene, react to all that. Yeah. Well, um, I do think that Carol and Kwan in the Hart- and the Hartford Symphony are doing so much to 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 uh, enforce that shift with success. I mean, when I went to the last concert, it was a Masterworks concert. The main... Um, you know, things on the agenda were two Beethoven pieces, but uh, they also had a piece by Adolphus Hairstork, whom I had never heard of, who's also a Black American composer, Four Hymns Without Words, and it was trumpet and orchestra, and it was a beautiful piece. And I ran into some Trinity students in the audience who weren't even music students, you know, they had just come because they were interested in the concert. So, um, you know, but I, I, it is interesting that orchestras are doing things, you know, like the Hartford Symphony does a um, show with the Cirque du Soleil performers, you know, or dancers, you know, ways to get the audience involved beyond the normal sitting in your chair, you know, quietly listening to music um, or watching musicians play. But at the same time, I, I have to say and hope that there is a, there, there's definitely, I think, some fruits to this move of engaging younger people. You know, the Hartford Symphony always has, you know, a, a much better ticket rate for younger people. And that does bring, I think, bring young people in. So um, so I feel optimistic. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Metcalf and I have not only watched, but kind of been involved in at times efforts to kind of to modify the format of concerts. It's always a little tricky. You don't want to get in the way of the music. I, I can speak. Uh, watching Maestro, I remembered, and I don't know if, Steve, if you remember this, but uh, I was working with Edward Cumming uh, on a Bernstein concert. 
and it was one of these things where I was kind of jumping into the audience and talking to the audience and jumping up on stage and talking to players in the orchestra and kind of pausing over certain things. And at a certain point, I realized that I had screwed up the orchestra's concentration so much that they were no longer playing Serenade up to their, up to their capabilities. And so I shut up and I sat in the audience and I heard Serenade and they played it so beautifully once stupid me was out of the way. Um, but, but to Irene's point, you know, you have to do those kinds of things. But to me, that's a little bit separate from the question that you're asking, which is what happens when names people don't recognize show up on the program? And to me, that is a, a, another question, right? Who are you directing that at? To you, to you, to okay. you, Maestro. Well, I mean, it's always been true that if, um, particularly, let's let's talk about symphony orchestras. You know, if if you want to play an obscure piece or a less well known piece, or you know, God forbid, a modern piece, it 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 has for many years sort of been the expectation that you will wash it down with a satisfying warhorse, you know, from the nineteenth century that everybody knows and loves. And I think if you were to you know, sort of ask Carolyn Kwan about that Beethoven concert that you're referring to, Irene, where where they played the Beethoven Fifth Symphony and the Beethoven Emperor Concerto, uh, two beloved, you know, warhorse pieces, if there ever were such, you know, that that in a way sort of provides the opportunity to then slip in the Hailstork piece, which, you know, of course, people don't know and they don't they don't have any any uh, expectations one way or the other and that's that's sort of the you know that's sort of the strategy for that which is fine i mean it's a it's a good strategy and i think it it worked in that case and others what i'm what i think i'm trying to also point out here there though is that the the whatever the new pieces are or the novelties or the unexpected non-war horses increasingly we're finding that they are uh, com- compositions by women or folks of color or both, as in the case of Florence Price, who I think we may talk about in a second. Actually, while, uh, while you're in the middle of that thought, let's, let's play a little bit of the Florence Price so that uh, people know what okay. you're talking about. So this is B1 Cat. Let's just, you know, hear a few seconds of Florence Price. So that's Florence Price. Uh, I interrupted you. Uh, if you can pick up what you were saying, go ahead. Well, I just brought her up because uh, you know, if there's if there's um, maybe any composer, honestly, who has benefited from from the new sort of current that I'm talking about here, it, it might be uh, Miss Price, who who uh, was born in the late. 1800s and lived into the 1950s she was a black woman who had some recognition during her lifetime she lived most of her adult life in chicago and she you know she won some prizes and got some attention here and there but really did did not achieve anything like the stature that i think uh might have been expected given the output and the quality of of her compositions 
But certainly in the last couple of years, she has come to everybody's attention. And actually, there was a whole bunch of stuff that she wrote that was only rediscovered uh, literally in a in a abandoned uh, summer house that she used, um, including the violin concerto that that she played, as you, I think, know, Irene, earlier this season with the Hartford Symphony, the first violin concerto. Um, and and the, the, the point is, she is now becoming a kind of a regular figure on on symphony programs, especially, but also chamber music programs uh, in some cases, and uh, and and I think people are discovering that they actually are warming to this music, not just as a gesture or or as a sort of a token, you know, acceptance of a of a not very well known figure. Uh, now it helps, of course, that she wrote music in a in a very accessible language and that uh th there's there's nothing you know sort of confrontational about it but um but i think nevertheless it represents uh, a change of sorts you wouldn't have heard a florence price piece on a on a typical symphony program 20 years ago and and now you do yeah i feel another yeah. composer like that uh, who may be rediscovered as a result of maestro is shirley ellis you know who we uh, <laughs> i knew i would get you to laugh at that uh, there is a, like a great shirley ellis clapping song moment uh, in maestro uh and i can tell you that the person sitting next to me on the couch when we were watching this on netflix uh, sang right along with every word uh, irene you were about to say something um, I was going to say that the canons, you know, canons in every in every arena are shifting. And it's interesting to think about classical music, you know, being part of that. You know, Toni Morrison didn't used to be considered one of the war horses uh, 40 or 50 years, you know, say in her early career. But now she's very much sort of part of the canon of of American literature, you know, and it seems because I was thinking even when we say the war horses, how many people even know the war horses you know people of a certain age who grew up listening to classical music do think of those pieces as war horses um, but a lot of people don't and so maybe the even just the concept of war horses is shifting what is a war horse you know of classical music you know maybe a beethoven symphony isn't top of mind for a lot of people that might go to a concert maybe they will start thinking Florence, you know, go because of Florence Price, you know, it, it's an interesting shift that's been happening in every arena. And I can't say how important a, a, a concept that is, Irene. I think, I think the, uh, the generation of folks for whom Beethoven five, let's say, or Emperor Concerto does mean something and, and constitutes something that they might've even grown up with or been introduced to by their parents or whatever it is. Uh, it, it, that page is turning clearly, and so uh, so we now have a kind of a blank page to draw on. And as you point out, that page can be uh, as readily written on by Fl Florence Price or or Hale Stork as it can anybody else. And so uh, I think that that kind of paves the way for the possibility that. Uh, uh, that the canon really isn't going to have the stranglehold that it has had for, what, 200 years, basically. 
All right, we're going to have to pause here. We're going to come back, make some recommendations. We'll go out, though, with something that I maybe fits a, a lot of what Metcalf is talking about right now. I don't know if you know this project, but this is um, a French horn player named Sarah Willis uh, who has put out, this is the third of three albums uh, called Mozart y Mambo. This one's called La Bella Cubana. Uh, and what she does is she work, goes down to Havana and works with this really terrific orchestra down there and also brings, I think, some people in from the Berlin Philharmonic. I think that's where she uh, plays. Uh, and they do Mozart and they do Cuban composers. This is Rondo a la Rumba by Edgar Olivero. Thanks today to our technical producer, Kat Pastor, who's having to juggle all these clips. And special thanks to Jonathan McPants, who produces pretty much all the nose episodes. And once again, a lot of material to juggle for this one. I do want to quickly say on Saturday, if you're listening on Friday, on Saturday, we will have at noon our annual holiday special with Big Al, Big Al Anderson and Jim Chapdelaine and me. Uh, you'll hear some of your old favorites, but we've got some new material, lots of really dumb dad jokes uh, from all of us. Uh, we'll re air it on Christmas Day at 1. And then next week, the week between the holidays will include uh, for the first time ever our year-end jazz review with Gene Seymour the mayor uh, and Noah Behrman and Jen Allen and then we're going to do a year-end news on Friday so lots of new stuff uh, coming up here even though it's the holidays because I don't know why uh, all right time to make some recommendations Irene why don't you get us started okay well I'm going to start with you know just encourage people to listen to Beethoven and classical music because it's so beautiful and if you you have to listen to it a few times before you go to a concert. So go to the Hartford Symphony, but whatever the program is, listen to it before you go a few times, just put it in the background and listen to it and you'll experience it differently. And if you're interested, you know, cause we all know that everyone knows the first few notes of the Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, but listen to the rest of it and think about how those notes get very varied and changed throughout the symphony. It's really rewarding the more you listen to it. Um, and if you're interested in Beethoven's life, there's this great book Called by May Maynard Solomon called Beethoven that really gets into the reasons for the deep passion and torment in all his music. Um, and another one I have is that I had sort of an idiotic eureka moment when I realized that you can go to podcasts and search for the name of a movie and find all the podcast casts that have talked about it. And so I did that with Maestro and I ended up with a podcast called The Director's Cut where there was a, an interview with Bradley Cooper. And it's really interesting to hear him talk about his experience as a director and what he was doing and how he was not afraid. And it's really fascinating. And it's on the director's cut. And so I, I'll leave it at that. An yeah. IEM, yet an IEM. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's an idiotic Eureka moment. Um, so yeah. I, I would quickly want to say that I would re also recommend the Bradley Cooper interview with David Remnick on the New Yorker Radio Hour. Um, there's a, a terrific uh, movie podcast called The Big Picture, which I ordinarily like. I thought they really did a terrible episode about Maestro. It seemed kind of uh, almost a little bit petty uh, and and not right. Um, all right, uh, Mr. Metcalf, what do you, do you what do you have for us? Well, so at, uh, this slides nicely. I think into uh, what Irene was just from what Irene was just saying, and forgive the nepotism here, but in the category of the Hartford Symphony, coming up in February, uh, on February 9, 10, and 11, three performances, they will be premiering a brand new 
double concerto for cello and classical guitar. And the soloists <laughs> will be the classical guitarist Rupert Boyd and the distinguished American cellist Laura Metcalf, who uh, as a duo uh, go by the moniker Boyd Meets Girl. And this is a brand new piece by uh, the very distinguished Brazilian-American composer Clarice Assad, who has written a piece, uh, a commissioned piece, especially for the Hartford Symphony and for the duo that will be uh, premiered uh, on the Masterworks series February 9, 10, and 11. So please go to the Hartford Symphony, uh, hartfordsymphony.org website and reserve your tickets now because this really will be a, a very exciting event. All right. That's terrific. Promise. Yeah. Um, I'm certainly getting my tickets. Um, so I, I'll just sort of build on what's been said so far. Uh, and I think one of the challenges sometimes is people feel a little intimidated. Um, they don't know what they like. They don't know how to discover what they like. The one thing that I would say, I, I've spent more time this year listening to kind of, you know, audience-friendly, modernist, uh, contemporary, classical, uh, whatever you want to call it, some of it kind of avant-garde uh, music. And and the way that I did it just was just I, I let the algorithms guide me. I don't like algorithms very much, and I don't even really know how they work. But um, on Tidal, which is the streaming service that I use, I'm sure you could do something very similar on Spotify and, or anything else. You know, I just, there were some, I, you know, I don't know, I'd pull up an Arvo Pear thing, you know, and then I'd put it on a playlist and do that with Max Richter and some other stuff. And before you know it, the algorithm over there in New Arrivals and Daily Discovery and stuff like that, it starts telling you about other stuff that you can then click on and listen to and see if you like it. Um, and just doing that, um, and, and I really do like the new stuff. I, I like being challenged. I, I like some of the stuff, not incidentally as a part of going to the Garmony concerts that Metcalf uh, founded and, and listening to people perform some of the newer stuff. Um, I, I just have found that that's a, just a, ter a terrific thing to do. Sometimes I can really pay attention to, to listen to it, but I also have it on while I'm working. And there's something kind of stimulating about all that kind of unfamiliar sound and some of the stuff that is sort of not following uh, typical melodic patterns kind of stimulating to the brain and stuff too. So, you know, just take a chance a little bit. Uh, you're, most of you are using streaming services now and building playlists and stuff like that. Build a playlist of stuff that you like or think you might like, uh, and then the stupid algorithm will maybe be helpful to you in finding <laughs> some other stuff as well. All right, thanks so much to Steve Metcalf and to Irene Papoulis. Have a wonderful holiday. We'll be back next week with new stuff. Francis, past the conservatory, up the street from the seminary. You know, it's a very, very, very cool place to hang out. Yeah. <laughs> it's cozy, like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, we all be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.